You're listening to Zion. The Golden Bible, Part 1 Palmyra, New York, August 1823 Joseph Smith's reputation as a treasure hunter depended on the success of tonight. He had promised the group of money-digging men that tonight they would unearth a buried trunk filled with gold coins, silver bars, and dazzling sapphires. Joseph stood shoulder to shoulder with a dozen rough men in a ragged semicircle surrounding a large, deep pit. Inside, Joseph's older brothers Alvin and Hiram dug into the earth with shovels, bending over, scooping up mounds of damp earth and tossing them onto the surface above. Each in the group had a different reason for needing the golden treasure. Some wanted to get ahead by paying off the mortgage owed on their homesteads, while others were more desperate and needed the money to buy food and medicine. As Joseph watched his brothers dig in the pit, he felt the anticipatory gaze of the men. He heard one man lean towards another and whisper, We ain't gonna find shit. Joseph snapped in a hushed whisper, Quiet! The man shut his mouth and nodded. They're beginning to murmur, Joseph thought. The men had taken turns digging for the last three hours, and Joseph knew their patience was running thin. He had instructed the group that for them to discover buried treasure, absolute silence was required. Trunks of buried gold were often protected by guardian spirits. If the men were too loud, they could awaken the spirit, who would then sink the trunk so deep in the earth that it would be irretrievable. Not only that, but the land where they were digging was private property, owned by Willard Chase. The Chase family cabin lay only 50 paces from where the group now dug. The lights were out, and all occupants presumably asleep. It needed to remain that way, because if awoken, Willard Chase would be outraged to find a group of treasure hunters digging on his land. Joseph reflected on how he had ended up in this circumstance. Earlier that night, the men had all gathered at a tavern eager to discover buried treasure. Almost immediately, a debate arose concerning the location of the night's dig. I, I think we should head south, Dr. Lumen Walters said. To that large hill. That's on the county border. Joseph's older brother Alvin nodded his agreement. I know that hill. It's not more than two miles from the Smith homestead. And I agree. The hill's so large, it's probably the burial mound of some ancient priest or king. Joseph knew the hill. And while it seemed like a strong candidate for discovering buried gold, he had a better plan of where they should dig. Joseph stood to get the men's attention, and all eyes fell on him. I've seen a vision of buried gold. Joseph said, The treasure is guarded by an ancient spirit. Lumen scoffed and said, Ah, fuck off, Joe. You ain't seen shit. Joseph was still in awe at the seemingly two halves of the doctor, both the learned man and the prolific and often vulgar cursor. At only 17 years old, Joseph had pale skin and piercing blue eyes. He was aware that his youthful complexion portrayed him as an unlikely leader. Everyone in Palmyra knew that the Smith family was magically gifted, and Joseph had the reputation of being a skillful money digger. But in the group, he was outranked by both Dr. Lumen Walters and his older brother Alvin. Alvin asked, 
how do you see this treasure and guardian spirit, Joe? Joseph smiled wryly, dramatically withdrawing an object from his satchel and holding it for the men to see. They all gawked in eager anticipation. Resting on his palm lay a small, polished white seer stone. With this, Joseph said, it's the most powerful seer stone you'll ever lay eyes on. Lumen cocked his head in disbelief. Quit your bullshit, Joe. I've seen seer stones before, and that's just a white rock. Wait, Joseph said. Do you feel that? The men sat motionless, the eyes of some darting from side to side. The stone pulses and jerks in my hand. Do you see it? Joseph's hand twitched with the stone in his palm. He felt his own pulse race as he sensed the men's interest mounting. I peered into this seer stone, and do you know what I saw? The men were all listening. I saw an ancient priest, a great leader dressed in Indian clothing, fine clothing of tightly packed wool. He told me his name was Nephi. A couple of the men nodded knowingly. Everyone knew that these lands had previously been populated by ancient peoples, some even older than the Indians themselves. They're close to following my lead, Joseph thought. If only I can convince them that my dig will be worth their while. Joseph continued, For the past week I've been working to dig a well for the Chase family, and while digging I peered into this stone and was shown a vision. Under the well sits Nephi, alone in a cave. One man blurted out, What's he guarding, Joe? Joseph smiled knowingly. Nephi is a powerful spirit because the treasure he protects is a trunk filled with gold, silver, and sapphires. A sigh of awe rippled through the men as they looked at one another in wonder. These men had nothing, and Joseph knew that men would follow anyone who gave them hope of becoming rich. Dr. Lumen Walters broke the spell, saying, We haven't forgotten last goddamn month, Joe. Remember when you promised us gold on Miner's Hill? Some of the men nodded and mumbled their agreement. Lumen continued, uh, But what did we find for all of our efforts? Nothing but shit-filled worms and mud. Joseph's brother Hiram spoke up. Lumen, you know these lands are cursed. It ain't Joseph's fault if the treasure is stolen by evil spirits before we could reach it. Joseph beamed from the public support from his brother. I know how to trap the Guardian Thanks for spirit. listening to the trailer. Joseph said loudly. He won't steal the treasure from us. Continue the story I by promise. listening to the full first Lumen episode narrowed his titled eyes The Golden How Bible. You Plan on Doing That. Trade secrets, Lumen, Joseph said. You follow my lead tonight, and you'll see how I do it. Oh, this is the same shit you said last time. Joseph saw that the men were dubious, and that he needed to up the ante if he hoped to lead tonight's expedition. Y you know what? I'll stake my reputation on tonight, Joseph said confidently. We don't find treasure, then I'm done money digging. The men fell silent. This was no simple boast. A man's reputation was a prized possession, and a man of ill repute was constantly subject to scorn by those in the community. For Joseph to stake his reputation on them finding buried treasure was a strong claim. Lumen stared hard at Joseph and said, You're saying... If we dig at your half-dug well, and we ain't find shit, you're done scrying? A scryer was someone who peered into seer stones to discern the occult, hidden location of lost or hidden objects. Everyone in Palmyra knew that Joseph was a talented scryer, 
and the threat of forsaking his abilities caused fear to grip his heart. Had he gone too far? Had he really seen the vision of Nephi in the trunk? Even if he had, would he be able to retrieve it? Still standing at the table, Joseph spit in his right hand and extended it to Lumen. That's right, we don't find treasure, and I'm done money digging. Lumen smiled mischievously and seemed ready to accept, but Joseph clarified first. But you follow my lead tonight. It is my expedition. With a devilish grin, Lumen spit in his hand and clasped it to Joseph's, shaking vigorously. How say you all then, huh? Should we follow Joseph's plan? Joseph's older brother Alvin looked skeptical and didn't reply, but his brother Hiram stood up next to him and bellowed, If Joe says that we'll find treasure tonight, then rejoice, because he's the most gifted scryer in all New York. The entire group of treasure-hunting men all cheered. They gathered their tools, and in the quiet darkness of the night, they crept onto the Chase family land and began digging in the already half-dug well. They had been digging for hours, and it was late in the evening as Joseph stood staring into the freshly dug pit in the earth. The enthusiasm he had felt in the tavern earlier in the night had now resolved into a bitter rock in his stomach. Lumen shuffled up next to him and whispered in his ear, You're done, Joe. I know you ain't seen shit about this treasure. Joseph scanned the other men's expressions and saw defeat in their eyes. They were about ready to give up. He was about ready to snap a sharp rebuke when looking up he caught a glimpse of the planet Jupiter glowing brightly in the east. Its presence was a strong harbinger of success. Joseph venerated the power of Jupiter and the celestial object's bright light now filled him with renewed determination. Anger boiled within Joseph's chest. I'll find that treasure tonight, he thought. I just need to trap that damn Nephi so he doesn't steal it first. Alvin and Hiram were both still digging in the earth pit, and ignoring Lumen, Joseph squatted down to be eye-level with his brothers. But before he could speak, his brother Alvin interrupted. This isn't working, Joe, but I got a new idea. Joseph gritted his teeth in frustration. This was his dig, not his brother's. Alvin climbed out of the pit and addressed the men in a low whisper. Joe's spirit is sinking the treasure. We can't get it because the spirit keeps taking it deeper. Joseph nodded and said, Nephi is a powerful priest spirit. Alvin smiled and said, The more powerful the guardian spirit, the bigger the treasure. Joseph felt irritated to be lectured by his older brother. It was clear to him that Alvin was trying to assume command of his expedition. He needed to act quickly if he hoped to salvage his authority. Joseph said, We need to bind the spirit Nephi so he can't take the treasure from us. Lumen drew close and whispered, All right, Joe, let's hear it. What's your horseshit plan to bind this spirit, huh? This was it, his chance to demonstrate his marvelous abilities. He would trap the spirit Nephi, dig up the treasure, and be the hero of all New York State. As the men all watched, Joseph withdrew a family heirloom dagger from a sheath. The dagger had belonged to the Smith family for generations and was 10 inches long, stainless steel, and inscribed with ancient Masonic symbols. Joseph pointed at his brother Alvin and barked, Get over here! As Alvin drew close, Joseph said, With this sacred blade, 
I command you to stand guard and protect this pit so the treasure isn't taken away. Immediately, Joseph could tell his brother was not impressed. He wore an expression of disbelief. This is your plan? He asked incredulously. Joseph shifted uneasily and said, No, uh, not just this. I have more ideas. Alvin shook his head and gestured around. Joe, we all have a chance to get rich tonight. Let me cast a, a, a spell to bind the spirit. Resentment seethed within Joseph. Alvin was trying to take over his expedition right when everything depended on him. At the moment of his greatest triumph, his brother was trying to snatch it from him. Have you forgotten, Joseph sputtered, that this is my dig and you will do what I say? Alvin looked shocked. Joe, I'm trying to help. Whatever you've planned, it won't be enough to bind the spirit. Let me perform. Kneel, Joseph spat. Kneel down right now. The men were all gathered around watching the quarrel. For a moment, Alvin appeared defiant and didn't speak. But then he sighed and said, Are you really going to make me do it? Joseph nodded solemnly. After a pause, Alvin stepped back with one leg and knelt on the other. As Joseph watched, his older brother bowed his head and held out his upturned palms. Joseph raised the dagger above his head to allow the waning moonlight to bathe the blade. Slowly, he placed the dagger on Alvin's upturned palms. The men watched mystified. With this blade, Joseph said, I command you to stand guard against malignant spirits. Alvin stood and taking the blade in both hands, turned to face away from the pit, keeping watch. Joseph then turned to the men and quietly asked, Now I need fresh men in the pit. His brother Hiram nodded reassuringly, saying, I'm good for another round, Joe. A man named Black Pete jumped heavily into the pit and took Alvin's place. Hiram and Black Pete stood gripping their shovels in the pit, awaiting instructions. With everything in place, Joseph felt ready to present his most prized possession of all. Digging in his satchel, he withdrew the dazzling, polished, smooth, white seer stone. He heard a gasp from the men as their eyes fell on the stone. He paused, brandishing the stone in a theatrical gesture so as to emphasize its magical aura. But the mere possession of a powerful seer stone was not enough to guarantee success. Joseph knew that certain innate occult powers were also required. He poured a generous amount of water into a silver-colored metal cup, then emerged the seer stone within. He also carefully deposited a dollar coin into the cup that he had saved for this very occasion. This was ceremonial magic, which relied heavily on the absolute perfect recitation of magical spells. If Joseph fuddled a word or misspoke, the spell would be ineffective. He drew in a deep breath and while extending the bowl, whispered, Gleaming moon, hear this verse. Polished coin, swell and fill my purse. Prosperous water, now break the curse. Joseph paused, gauging the mood of the men watching. He was about to give instructions for the digging to recommence when he looked at his brother Alvin and his heart skipped a beat. Alvin wore a smirk on his face and he said to the men, We must do one last thing. 
Joseph would have shouted for Alvin to stop, but the loud noise would have awoken the Chase family sleeping in the cabin nearby. Mixing magical spells between conjurers was a dangerous practice. Everyone watched as Alvin held the dagger handle in one hand and gripped the dull blade with the other. Alvin's grip was so tight around the blade that Joseph saw the whites of his brother's knuckles. Then, on full display for all the men to see, Alvin quickly withdrew the dagger from his grip, slicing his palm. A man let out a horrified gasp. The men all watched as Alvin squeezed an inky rivulet of blood from his clenched fist. He paced around the pit in a circle, shaking his hand and splattering the ground with his blood. Those familiar with the occult knew the shape of the circle held powerful energy. By creating a circle around the pit in his blood, Alvin had formed a sacred, magical environment more likely to bind the spirit Nephi. A few of the men shifted uneasily. Blood magic was dangerous and was often associated with satanic devil worship. Watching the spectacle, Joseph simmered with anger. Alvin's performance had eclipsed his own efforts. After everything that he had done to win the praise for tonight's discovery, he now understood that if they finally did find the trunk of gold, all the men would thank Alvin and his blood magic. If they failed, it was his fault. And if they succeeded, it was a credit to Alvin. Joseph felt that he could kill his older brother. When Alvin had finished, he turned and winked at Joseph. Let's see that son of a bitch Nephi hide the treasure now. He then turned his back and raised the bloody dagger, standing guard once again. Joseph groaned, then nodded to Black Pete and Hiram in the pit, and they began to dig furiously. He snuck a glance at the Chase family cabin. The lights were still out, and everyone within was still asleep. His heart beat faster. This was it, the moment he had envisioned. He closed his eyes and willed the treasure to stay locked in place. Joseph imagined the buried treasure, a wooden trunk rotting from wet earth, the metal hinges rusted, the gold coins within stamped with strange Indian characters. Hiram and Black Pete tossed shovelfuls of earth out of the pit in a staccato rhythm. Then, without warning, the entire forest clearing began to glow. Joseph held up a hand in alarm. What was happening? The greenish hue grew brighter, causing the digging to stop. Joseph saw Alvin twirl around, looking confused. Long shadows shifted among the trees as the light traveled in the night sky. Instinctively, everyone shifted their gaze upwards. A comet, Joseph realized in horror. A very ill omen. Shaken from his trance, Lumen let out an ear-splitting shriek. Let's get the fuck out of here! Stop! chided Joseph through clenched teeth. The group froze and listened. Joseph spun and gazed at the nearby Chase family cabin, trying to hear over the sound of his heart hammering in his chest. A light sputtered within the Chase cabin, and Joseph knew immediately that the dig had ended. Run! Lumen yelled to the others. Willard Chase would soon emerge from his cabin and find a group of men digging for treasure on his land. Very likely, he would emerge armed. Come on, Joe, Hiram said, tugging on his arm. We gotta get out of here. 
Most of the men made a break towards the tree line as Joseph finished gathering his supplies. But wait, something deep in the pit caught Joseph's eye. Without thinking, he jumped into the muddy innards of the earthen pit and grabbed the object along with a fistful of mud. The front door of the Chase family cabin burst open and Willard Chase stepped out holding a rifle and a lantern. Joseph could just make out the 25-year-old wispy beard of Willard Chase. Who's there? Joseph sprinted towards the dark forest. Groping blindly, his shins struck logs and tree branches whipped at his face. He rejoined the men as they stood bent over and panting. When Joseph arrived in the forest clearing with the others, he was breathless and gasping for air. Lumen was the first to speak. Oh, you're done, Joe. You'll never lead another expedition again. Joseph felt confused. His thoughts tumbled in his mind as he tried to orient himself. His brother Hiram spoke up. Lumen, what about the comet? What of it? Comets are cursed and signs from Satan himself. Further evidence that Joseph's visions of treasure are shit. Lumen pointed a finger at Joseph. You're a fraud, Joe. Suddenly, Joseph remembered the object he had grabbed from within the pit. He opened his fist to expose a lump of wet mud. He turned his back to the men, causing them to clamor around him, struggling to peer over his shoulder. What's that? Gold? Lumen sputtered. That belongs to everyone, Joe. Moonlight through the trees illuminated Joseph's hand as he cleared off the mud. His heart soared as he realized what he was holding. The object was round, roughly the shape and size of an egg. It was a stone with swirling chocolate-colored patterns. He held it up for all the men to see. Joseph had discovered a new seer stone. What is that? Black Pete asked. It's a seer stone, Joseph said triumphantly. We did find treasure tonight. Lumen snatched up the stone and examined it closely. This ain't no seer stone. Look at it, it's all brown. It's a shit stone. Despite its common appearance, Joseph felt triumphant in finding the stone. He felt confident once he peered into its depths, it would reveal the location of a magnificent treasure. But when Joseph turned to look at his older brothers, Alvin and Hiram, his heart sank. Instead of triumph on their faces, Joseph saw only the expressions of disappointment. They didn't see the discovery of the new seer stone as a victory. Instead, their expressions seemed to indicate that he had failed. Half to himself, Joseph said reassuredly, Surely this seer stone is a gift from God. He looked at each man in turn as he spoke. Tonight was no failure. Surely this new stone will lead us to a bigger treasure. But as he said it, Joseph knew that his words rang hollow. The men were muddy, exhausted, sleepy, and beaten. Their downcast eyes told him that they had lost hope. After leaving the forest, each of the men all dispersed and went their separate ways. Joseph walked astride his brothers on a wagon-rutted dirt road in the direction of their family cabin. He felt nauseous as he reflected on the events of the evening. While surely Alvin had interfered in his dig, Joseph now recognized that his own emotions of anger and hatred towards his brother may have rendered the spells ineffective. He watched Alvin wrap his sliced hand in a rag and could see blood spots ooze through the fabric. The cutting of his hand was a powerful gesture to demonstrate his commitment to the dig, 
and Joseph felt ashamed that he had dismissed these efforts so callously. I should have let you help more tonight, Joseph said while the brothers walked. Alvin held his hand gingerly and said, Indeed, you should have. If you would have listened to me tonight, we would have found that treasure and not be limping back home empty-handed. Joseph winced at the word limp. As a child, he had suffered a leg infection that had given him a pronounced limp in his left leg. He was self-conscious of the limp and was afraid his stuttered gait portrayed him as weak. Alvin's comment was surely intentional, as he would often tease Joseph about the limp. This isn't a game, Joe. That gold could have changed our life. Joseph was all too aware of his family's dire need for money. The final mortgage payment on their homestead was coming due soon, and they had not yet raised the required savings. Alvin said, Don't you ever stop me from performing my God-given abilities again, Joe. Next time, just stay out of my way. Joseph felt sick. Tonight was supposed to be the night he cemented his reputation as the most gifted scryer in all New York. Instead, he had gone for broke, and now everyone would know he had failed. His throat went dry as he realized the full implications of the evening. Had he really promised to forsake scrying if he failed to discover treasure? Would he do it? Could he forsake scrying? As if anticipating his thoughts, Hiram said, Maybe just lay low for a little while, Joe. The idea cast Joseph into a deep depression. Every member of the Smith family felt they had innate abilities to see things that others couldn't, and that God had chosen them for something great. But now Joseph cycled, unable to escape the fact that he had promised to renounce scrying. Why had he been so cavalier, staking so much on something that was out of his control? And yet he had made a promise. He had said that he would renounce scrying if they didn't find golden treasure. And no treasure had been found, at least not gold or silver. Joseph withdrew the chocolate-colored seer stone from his pocket and examined its textures. He felt it hum gently in his hand and knew there was something special about the stone. But the longer he gazed at it, the angrier he felt. The stone seemed to mock him, whispering, Peer into my depths. Discover my secrets. But why should he? So the stone could make a fool of him? No, he would not peer into the stone. At least, not yet. Maybe Hiram was right. He should just lay low. Maybe he should stop scrying, even if just for a month or two. But if he gave up scrying, what would he do instead? On a sunny Sabbath afternoon, Joseph turned off the Ontario County Road, strolling along the Canal Main Street of Palmyra. He planned on escorting the beautiful young Sarah Lane on a mid-afternoon walk through the woods surrounding the township. Earlier in the week, he had asked permission to call on Sarah, and while she had agreed, Joseph couldn't help feeling there was a distinct lack of enthusiasm in her acceptance. Sarah Lane was the daughter of the wealthy Palmyra Lane family. Her prestige and beauty both attracted and intimidated Joseph. But he was most unnerved by the reputation of Sarah's father. Sarah's father was named Reverend George Lane. He was a highly respected member of the Palmyra Township as a wealthy merchant, a high-ranking mason, an articulate orator, 
and a presiding elder over the Ontario District of Methodists. Joseph was attracted to Sarah because of her beauty and wealth, but his interest was expedited by the fact that both his brothers Alvin and Hiram were already engaged to be married. One day, while cutting trees on their homestead, Alvin had said, Hey, how many times have you seen Joe with the girl, Hiram? Hiram shrugged and didn't reply. Alvin continued, I'm just saying, watch out. I'm starting to suspect Joe here may be a sodomite. Hiram had laughed, and Joseph knew his brothers were merely teasing, but the implication had festered in his mind. Alvin was eight years his senior, and Hiram six. So at 17 years old, Joseph felt pressured to grow up quickly. He was determined to find someone, fall in love, and get engaged to be married. And Sarah Lane was the best candidate in all Palmyra. If Joseph could convince Sarah to become his wife, he would solve two problems in one stroke, impress his brothers, and marry into wealth and affluence. During their walk this morning, Joseph would bring up the subject of marriage. If he played his cards right, he may be able to convince her that the idea was sound. The Palmyra Township lay directly on an east-west water highway called the New York State Barge Canal, which was used by canal boats to transport goods to and from New York City. Construction jobs were in high demand, and immigrants from New York City flooded westwards to fill the positions. As such, Palmyra had been transformed from a sleepy American frontier settlement into a bustling township. Joseph relished every opportunity he got to travel to Palmyra. He would glance into shop windows and gawk at newly imported items, such as new clothing fashions, cure-all medicines, and small toys powered by steam. However, despite its recent growth, Palmyra had retained its pragmatic style. Instead of fancy upscale buildings, the main street structures were plain and practical, with sharp squared corners and simple planked facades. Palmyra did not indulge in fancy decor or costly frills. A fight among the canal construction diggers had broken out at the intersection called Bloody Corners, and Joseph quickly sidestepped out of the way of the skirmish. As he passed by the scuffle, he heard the distinct Irish accents of the immigrants and watched them throw quick jabs. The Lane family lived in a well-built townhome near the center of the row of buildings along Main Street. Joseph approached the front facade and knocked on the door. As he waited, he turned and soaked in the noises and smells, admiring the industry of the town. The contrast between the Lane's townhome in the Smith's country cabin was sharp. Joseph longed for a time when he could move out of the countryside and live in the hotbed of where important decisions were being made. The door opened and Joseph was pleased to see Sarah in the front foyer. Her long red hair was pulled back, giving her a stately air. Not for the first time, Joseph couldn't help wonder if her red hair matched her body hair. Good morning, Sarah, Joseph said. Sarah, who's that? came a voice from within the townhome. Sarah let out a sigh. It's just Joe Smith. Joseph watched as Sarah's father, Reverend George Lane, approached. Reverend Lane was a short, half-bald, and thin-lipped man. 
At first glance, he appeared to be a mousy and meek individual. But what Reverend Lane lacked in physical demeanor, he more than made up for in strength of character. He carried himself with a self-righteous air. It was clear that he believed all his actions were virtuous and challenged anyone to say otherwise. Joseph had known Reverend Lane for years during his childhood and now smiled to remind the Reverend of their familiar relationship. Good morning, Reverend, Joseph said. I'm here to call on your daughter. Joe Smith, the Reverend said in a condescending tone. I was hoping you could set me straight on some rumors I've heard recently. Yes, sir, I'll try. I've heard tell that you, along with our esteemed colleague, Dr. Lumen Walters, have been using satanic blood magic while scrying for buried gold. Joseph cursed Alvin under his breath. His brother's blood magic ritual was getting him in trouble. He considered correcting the reverend that he had not participated in the ritual, but knew his defense would be perceived as pedantic. Well, sir, I... I know that some don't see the danger in indulging in the occasional occult ritual, Reverend Lane said, apparently enjoying his sanctimony. But the Lane household encourages the Holy Spirit to reside with us, and therefore we choose to uphold Christian values. As do I, Joseph said flatly. Mm-hmm, Reverend Lane muttered, seemingly unimpressed. I'm assuming you've come in an effort to court my daughter Sarah, is that correct? Joseph nodded while smiling. I don't enjoy being the one to tell you, but my daughter won't be courted by a money-digging scryer, you understand? Joseph was taken aback. Sir, if I could just... Tell me, Joe, is it just you, or do both your mother and father also engage in satanic devil worship? Joseph was shocked. Never, he said horrified. And yet, and be honest with me, Joe, they do perform magical circles and soothsaying ceremonies, is that correct? Well, yes, sir, Joseph said, but that's not devil worship. Ah, Reverend Lane said, as if to emphasize that he had won some imaginative point in their debate. The son of the morning star is wily Joe, and beguiles many to retreat from the altar of God to worship at the feet of his false gods. Joseph said, no, sir, the word occult means simply hidden, and many things in the Bible make reference to lost practices. Sir, my family, we are all devout Christians. And yet, Reverend Lane said, I can't recall the last time I saw any member of the Smith family at one of my Sunday services. This was true. While devoted Christians, Joseph's parents both believed all the church denominations to be wicked and separate from Christ's true teachings. His mother would often say, You can get closer to God through an afternoon of prayer in the woods, then through an entire week in a church building. Reverend Lane's eyes darted down to look at something on Joseph's chest. He stepped forward and pointed, saying, What is that around your neck? Joseph's eyes widened in alarm. He looked down quickly and saw immediately what the reverend was referring to. Outside his shirt hung his silver symbol of the planet Jupiter. The amulet had been given to him years ago, and he had worn it every day since for good luck. The necklace must have been dislodged as he dodged the fight on bloody corners, and Joseph bemoaned his jinxed misfortune. I asked you a question, Joe. Tell me what that is. Joseph considered saying it was a Christian symbol, but knew Reverend Lane would see through the lie. He sighed and said simply, It's a silver amulet of the symbol of the planet Jupiter. 
Reverend Lane stepped back hurriedly from the amulet as if being too close would contaminate him with Satan's powers. Oh, my Christ, save us, he muttered. Joseph tucked the amulet back under his shirt, feeling ashamed. Reverend Lane shook his head and looked disgusted. Joe, I call you to repentance. You worship that which is closest to your heart, and you hold that wicked amulet on your bare chest. For being an amulet of good luck, Joseph felt angry that it had been visible at such an inopportune time. Reverend Lane said, I hope you can understand now why I have no choice but to assume you have ill intentions with my daughter. This was too much, and Joseph was just able to stifle his anger. The reverend was right about his family's magical activities, but his intentions with Sarah were not malicious. Sir, you have insulted me, Joseph said unyielding. A scryer I may be, but you are wrong, sir, to infer that my intentions with your daughter are nefarious. Reverend Lane looked shocked and said, Whatever your intentions may be, Joe, I ask you, how many U.S. senators, governors, or men of God do you know that began their prestigious careers as money-digging scryers? Joseph felt the truth of the reverend's words. U.S. senators and men of God seemed beyond the childish trifles of scrying and treasure hunting. The idea that a U.S. senator would stoop to such a low now seemed laughable to Joseph. And furthermore, Reverend Lane continued, when I speak to my congregation of Methodists, I advise them to abstain from magic, enchantments, astrology, and other occult practices. Reverend Lane's voice became that of a pulpit preacher. Magic rots men's brains and cankers his soul. An idea struck Joseph. Sir, perhaps if I was baptized into the Methodist faith, your opinion of me would improve. Now Reverend Lane looked truly surprised. What a brash decision, young Joe, he said. I would first want to see that your heart has truly changed, that it's been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Joseph's mind raced. Why had he not considered this solution sooner? If he became a Methodist, he'd have more opportunities to impress Reverend Lane and therefore more chances to win his approval to court his daughter. Besides, the ranks of Methodists were filled with prosperous merchants, craftsmen, prospectors, and statesmen. Joseph envisioned the prestige that he could claim if he rose up the ranks of the Methodist hierarchy. Sir, I feel the blood of the Lamb coursing in my veins. Its healing powers are whispering for me to forsake scrying as merely a, a, a youthful indiscretion. This was a stretch, Joseph knew. His family was devoutly anti-religious. His mother in particular took great pride in not associating with any particular religious denomination. Joseph said decisively, Sir, I am ready to be baptized. Reverend Lane looked skeptical. Of course you won't be barred from the waters of baptism, but I personally would like to see evidence of your spiritual rebirth before you'd be permitted to court my daughter. Reverend Lane seemed to believe the conversation had ended and made to shut the door, but Joseph quickly interjected. Sir, would I still be permitted to walk with your daughter this morning? Without hesitation, Reverend Lane shook his head. I want to see that you're serious first, Joe. Give up magic, soothsaying, and scrying, and then we'll talk. Joseph watched the door close, along with his hopes of walking with Sarah. As he walked home the way he had come, 
he reflected on Reverend Lane's words. How could he renounce magical practices and still remain a devout Christian? Some things were clearly black magic, such as the blood magic performed by Alvin. But what of seer stones, visions, and spells invoking the name of God? Were these not all present in the Holy Scriptures? Maybe Reverend Lane simply found the money-digging profession unsavory. Joseph agreed. The practice of scrying often attracted the poor and desperate. It suddenly dawned on Joseph that perhaps God wanted him to stop scrying. When he had staked his reputation on the success of the treasure-hunting expedition, he hadn't really believed that he would stop scrying if he failed. But now he wondered if not finding treasure that night had been part of God's divine plan. And now a man of God, such as Reverend Lane, had denied him permission to court his daughter on account of his enterprise with scrying. It seemed to Joseph that the powers controlling his life were trying to send him a message. What good had scrying and money digging brought into his life? He reflected that participants in treasure hunting expeditions would often pay the seer a conjurer's fee for the privilege of joining the outing. But the income was meager, and despite his years of efforts, he had never discovered a trunk of gold coins. Instead, he now realized, the practice had only brought him heartache and failure. Although sharp, Reverend Lane's words had shook Joseph. He still believed that he was destined for great things, but now he understood that he didn't want his greatest achievements to be associated with vagabonds and despots in money digging. He wanted to achieve greatness, but he was still behaving like a child. To achieve the life he never had, Joseph realized he needed to do something that he had never done. His chances with Sarah had not ended. Reverend Lane had not said that he could never court Sarah, but instead had indicated that if Joseph were to forsake scrying, then he'd be allowed to court her. Joseph saw clearly what he needed to do. Forsake scrying, become a Methodist, win the affections of Sarah, and live a life of success. Joseph's step lightened and his spirits soared as he walked home in the afternoon sun. It was the beginning of a new life. He was no longer a scryer. Palmyra, New York, September 22, 1823. Joseph sat brooding in the corner of the crammed Smith family cabin. He watched with uneasy trepidation as each member of his large family busily made preparations for tonight's honoring of the fall equinox. The Smith family had long participated in the annual astrological events such as solstices, alignments of stars and celestial bodies, and tonight they were intent on commemorating the fall equinox. Today, both day and night were equal, and so too was good and evil. As such, the portals between the spiritual and physical realms were at their thinnest, which permitted ghosts, specters, and phantoms to pass into the physical world unobstructed. The family pine kitchen table had been moved to one side of the keeping room, and Joseph watched as his mother, Lucy Mack, 
stooped down and began to scrape a piece of white chalk across the puncheon split log floorboards of the cabin. She was on hands and knees and drew a well-practiced circle, roughly nine feet in diameter, in the center of the keeping room. The Smith family cabin was a small structure, built by hewn logs, notched and fitted, then plastered with white clay. With two parents, five brothers, and three sisters, the cabin was far too small to comfortably accommodate all 11 occupants. The ceremony the Smiths planned to perform tonight would induce various spiritual phenomena, allowing for them to produce charmed protective amulets, divination and soothsaying to foretell the future, and if the ceremony was performed correctly, even commune with the dead. In years prior, Joseph would have eagerly joined his family in making preparations. Magical ceremonies were often provocative and exciting. But now Joseph felt different. His recent change of heart to renounce performing magical occult practices had hardened into a rock-solid conviction. He had intended to tell his family of his new belief, but the perfect opportunity had not arisen. He had feared they would simply dismiss renunciation of magic as just another fanciful ambition. Among the family, it was common knowledge that Joseph often told tall tales and fantastic stories, and his family would sometimes tease him for boasting before he'd actually done anything. Joseph, dear, his mother Lucy Mack would say, don't count your chickens before they hatch. But as Joseph watched his family prepare for tonight's equinox ceremony, he knew he had waited too long and wished he had told them sooner. His family would expect him to play an active role in tonight's ceremony. Anxiety mounted in his chest as he considered what he would say when confronted. He couldn't just say he was done with magical scrying. He needed to do something that would cause them to not question his decision and know that he was serious. He needed to do something dramatic and definitive. But what could he do? Joseph's mother, Lucy Mack, was using a broom to sweep dust out of the chalk circle, thereby purifying the space and pushing out the negative energy within. As he watched, Joseph felt out of body, as though he was observing his family through a window and that he was seeing them clearly for the first time. He observed his seven-year-old brother, Don Carlos, place candles at the four cardinal degrees of the circle. He remembered Reverend George Lane's words from days prior. Tell me, Joe, is it just you, or do both your mother and father also engage in satanic devil worship? Joseph had never understood the comparisons of occult rituals to devil worship. But observing his sister Sophronia arrange magical crystals around the perimeter of the chalk circle, he realized that was exactly what his family was doing. Reverend Elaine's words echoed in his mind. The son of the morning star is wily, Joe, and beguiles many to retreat from the altar of God to worship at the feet of his false gods. He watched his mother as she sat leaning over a grimoire book of spells, scanning its contents and muttering the words of the incantations to herself. She had written the words, Abric in large distinct letters on a white sheet of clean new vellum. Instead of his family, Joseph saw strangers, fools clutching onto their ignorance and superstitions. 
while surrounded by grimoire spellbooks, crystals, seer stones, divining rods, drying herbs, mushrooms, and amulets. Joseph was surprised as he realized he suddenly saw his family the way everyone else did. Poor, magical, superstitious, backwater fools. He tried to imagine the Lane family performing an equinox ceremony. The idea of the beautiful Sarah Lane debasing herself by peering into seer stones and reciting ancient grimoire spells now seemed utterly ridiculous. Reverend Lane was right. His family had been beguiled by Satan. Joseph glanced at his father, who sat on the other side of the keeping room. Bleary-eyed and red-faced, Joseph knew immediately his father had overindulged once again in drink. Joseph's father was often drunk, but today he had likely interpreted the fall equinox as a holy day on which to celebrate with more drink. He now sat motionless, seemingly unaware of the commotion taking place around him. Joseph had been named Junior after his father, who was Joseph Smith Sr. He despised the association with his drunk father and felt that his father's poor reputation hung over him like a dark cloud. After deciding to renounce magical scrying, Joseph had worried that he'd never fully remove the stain his family had left on his reputation. All of Palmyra knew his father was a drunk and that his family was deeply steeped in occult practices. What if he was never able to escape his family's infamy? If he wasn't able to escape, he was confident that he'd be cursed to wallow in obscurity, never amounting to anything more than the pathetic failures of his drunk father. Joseph saw his mother, Lucy Mack, gaze concernedly at her husband, whose eyes were now beginning to roll up under his eyelids. She shook her head in disapproval, then shouted to Alvin, who was upstairs. Alvin, are you ready? Joseph winced, knowing what was about to happen. His brother Alvin would come downstairs and try to enlist him to participate in the equinox ceremony. He steeled his convictions against being roped into such a blatantly wicked practice. He heard his brother stomp down the narrow stairway from the upstairs attic. On the final steps, Alvin jumped into the keeping room, donning a billowing crimson cloak. Are we almost ready? He said cheerfully. Alvin was holding the large leather-bound family Bible in both hands. Lucy Mack gestured to her husband, who swayed slightly. She said, I'm afraid to say your father's feeling sick tonight. Joseph rolled his eyes. This was the lie they often told themselves about their father's drunkenness. He always seemed to be sick. Lucy Mack continued speaking to Alvin. As the eldest patriarch in the family, it's your responsibility to guide tonight's ceremony, Alvin. Normally, their father, Joseph Sr., would preside over the ceremony. But Lucy Mack was being polite, trying to help her husband save face, as it was clear he was too inebriated to participate. Alvin seemed to grasp the situation because while staring at their father, he nodded briskly. Emboldened by his mother's permission, Alvin began making authoritative demands of each family member in turn. Hiram, I need you to go and fetch more candles. Will, I need you to ensure that we're only using fresh flowers and herbs in the circle, understand? After dispensing mandates to each member of the family, Alvin turned and his eyes fell on Joseph. Here it comes, Joseph thought. Alvin approached with a smug look of satisfaction and asked, Look at you being a sluggard, Joe. 
Come on, you're going to be the reader tonight. Joseph made no reply, and Alvin cocked his head quizzically. You deaf? Alvin asked, and heavily deposited the large family Bible on Joseph's lap. Come on, we left off last night in 1 Corinthians. Every night before going to bed, the Smiths gathered together and read the Holy Scriptures as a family. It was a tradition they had begun when they had first moved to Palmyra, and they had never once missed a night of reading. Alvin stared at Joseph expectantly. Joseph felt cornered in that he could no longer remain silent. He spoke clearly, saying, I'm not joining tonight, because I'm no longer a magical scryer. Alvin stopped dead and furled his brow. What's that? What'd you say? Joseph straightened his back and looked determined. I'm done scrying, he said. I'm not joining in tonight's equinox ceremony. Alvin sat heavily in the seat next to Joseph. You seem overcome with some kind of evil, Joe. I think you may need to read the healing words of the Holy Scriptures more than I suspected. Joseph pursed his lips tightly and made no reply. He had no qualms in reading the Bible, but resented his older brother's authoritative self-righteous demands. Joseph glanced down at the Bible and said, First Corinthians, huh? Well, here's a verse for you. Reciting from memory, Joseph said, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Alvin looked indignant and asked, What childish things? Joseph gestured to the magical circle and otherworldly objects strewn around the house. Alvin became visibly irritated and said, Are you saying... These sacred instruments are in fact wicked? Joseph watched as Alvin reached into his robe pocket and withdrew the chocolate-colored, egg-shaped seer stone that they had found during their recent digging expedition. Alvin hefted the stone and gestured to Joseph. Uh, so you're done scrying then, huh? That's not what you said the other night when you found this seer stone. You said that it held visions of vast treasures of gold. Remember that? Lucy Mack interjected, Alvin, that's enough. Leave Joe alone. Alvin turned to his mother and said kindly, Just trying to clear the air, mother. Joseph felt like a chain that was being pulled too tight. At any moment, he'd snap. Alvin grabbed a tall stovetop hat with a wide brim and set it on the Bible on Joseph's lap. He extended the stone to Joseph expectantly. You seem to have forgotten, Joe that we got the mortgage payment due soon here on the homestead, and we need every cent. So peer into this here stone and see what treasure has to show us. Joseph gritted his teeth as he boiled with fury. He saw Alvin's eyes narrow with malice. Come on, Joe, Alvin said mockingly. Do what you do best. Peer into the stone. Joseph had reached his limit. He smacked Alvin's hand and the stone flew across the room, striking the far wall. It clattered to the ground and the family fell silent. You son of a bitch, Alvin spat. As Joseph watched the stone roll to a stop on the floor in front of him, he was suddenly struck with a flash of inspiration. He saw clearly what he needed to do. In a single fluid motion, Joseph launched out of his chair and snatched the stone from off the ground. He had bolted so quickly he had forgotten about the large Bible on his lap and it had fallen hard on the cabin floor in a heap, bending some of the pages. Alvin shouted furiously, Oi, the, the Bible, Joe! 
But before Alvin could thwart his plans, Joseph grabbed an empty wooden box and began depositing within various magical objects from around the cabin. He placed within the chocolate-colored seer stone, crystals, amulets, the family dagger, and even a stuffed toad. Joseph's plan was to remove all the magical objects from their household. The gesture would signal to the family how determined he was, and hopefully the act would be so dramatic that many in the Palmyra community would hear of what Joseph had done. Drastic measures were required if he hoped to cleanse his besmirched reputation. I told you I'm done scrying, Joseph shouted, and I'm getting rid of these devilish things. Alvin stood tall and imposing, looking furious. He yelled, Like hell you are! In a quick eruption of fury, Alvin pushed Joseph, causing him to stagger and fall hard within the center of the chalk magic circle. Lucy Mac cried out, The circle! It's been defiled! Get out of the circle, Joe! Joseph understood the significance of his trespass. He had broken the circle, which would weaken or dispel the power of the space. Grinding his teeth, he shot up in a flash and tackled Alvin to the ground. The two brothers grappled, hefted, and exchanged blows with one another, while Lucy Mac shouted, Outside! Go outside! Alvin's foot slipped on the family Bible that still lay strewn on the ground. His shoe tore a clump of pages and the tattered sheets lay scattered on the ground. Stop! Stop! Lucy Mac shouted, You're destroying the Bible! Both Alvin and Joseph stopped their fighting, and Joseph stared in horror at the torn pages spread on the ground. He turned to Alvin and yelled, Look what you've done! Alvin shouted back, That's your fault, Joe! Lucy Mack gathered up the pages of the Bible and retreated to the table where Alvin joined her. The momentary lull in the fight gave Joseph some time to gather the last few magical objects into the wooden box before he quickly snuck out the front door of the cabin. He stepped out into the brisk evening night air. The sun was setting and the sky glowed a pinkish hue. Hefting the now heavy wooden box filled with magical supplies, Joseph heard the door burst open behind him and Alvin call after. You're a wicked son of a bitch, Joe! Joseph whirled around. You should be thanking me for bringing the family back onto the Christian path. By destroying the family Bible? You did that, Alvin, not me. So what, you gonna go off and bury these supplies? You gonna risk the curses from the spirits by defiling these sacred relics? Joseph shook his head. But in reality, he hadn't thought far enough ahead to consider what he was going to do with the magical objects now that he had them. You're a fool, Alvin, Joseph said, shaking his head. Look at, look at father. Look at what a lifetime of magical scrying has brought him. A wet brain and poverty. Alvin looked defiant but stayed quiet. Joseph said, I don't aspire to be a poor farmer my whole life. Senators, men of God, and statesmen don't associate in occult magic. Alvin scoffed and said, What's so admirable about senators and statesmen? Or have you forgotten the scripture about the meek and the humble inheriting the earth, Joe? Joseph let out a sigh of exasperation. <sighs> Alvin said, You've been beguiled, Joe, by Satan himself. Now it was Joseph's turn to showcase his biblical memorization, and he said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Alvin shook his head disappointedly and said, If you take these sacred objects away from our house, Joe, I will never forgive you. 
Joseph felt the cold hand of doubt grip his heart. Was he doing the right thing? Half of the objects in the box had been items that he had acquired or found. They were his to do with what he pleased. Besides, his family was too entrenched in magical practices to know that Joseph was truly trying to help them. God would surely bless the Smith family if they turned their back from wickedness, he was sure. Joseph stared at Alvin and said confidently, One day, Alvin, you'll thank me. And with that, Joseph turned his back and began walking away, still holding the heavy box of magical objects. Alvin called after him, Renounce Satan, Joe! He's got control of ya! With the words still hanging in the air, Joseph walked onto the nearby wagon trail in the dimming evening light. When Joseph had walked a considerable distance from his family cabin, he began to feel apprehension with his recent outburst. Had he been too brash? He considered whether his family would still hold the equinox ceremony. His mother would likely rededicate the sanctity of the space within the chalk circle and proceed using soothsaying magical words. Later, when he returned back home, would he have to face dire consequences? He dismissed these thoughts from his mind and focused on what he would do with this box of magical objects. He considered Alvin's suggestion of burying them, but quickly disregarded the idea. He was too scared to risk the displeasure of watchful spirits by desecrating the sanctity of the objects. It wasn't that Joseph didn't believe the objects held magical powers, but rather he questioned the idea that using their magical powers would benefit him and his family. Maybe he could sell the objects, but who would buy them? Most of the clientele that employed Joseph's services were either too poor or wouldn't know what to do with the magical objects. He considered going to a nearby wealthy neighbor, Martin Harris, but knew immediately that Mr. Harris would simply ask a lot of questions and then tell Joseph that he had no use for such instruments. Then, with a sinking realization, it dawned on Joseph who would buy the magical tools. Quickening his pace, Joseph shifted the weight of the box and headed northwards in the direction of Palmyra to the residence of Dr. Lumen Walters. Hi, this is the author and creator of Zion. What you've just finished listening to is just part one of a two-part story. I personally love the next part, and I really think you will too. So find out what happens next to Joseph Smith and continue the story by downloading the episode titled The Golden Bible Part 2. And seriously, thanks so much for listening.